Uh, plenty going on during the day on RTE Radio 1. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. Okay. The campfire is wonderful. I call it nature's TV. It's, oh, the, yes. it's the only channel you'll never change. Very serious issue that there are a lot of people working very hard to push back against and to improve the lives of Americans. But that's not what the media are focusing on. Meanwhile, they're focusing on this individual uh, who has just held America captive by being an entertainer. Compared to Ireland, though, according to Chagask, in 2020, the average person here ate 3.6 kilos worth of chocolate over the course of the year. Uh, so so way, way above many other countries, way above uh, the, the global average. And it would actually be above what we'd see in the UK. They're about three kilos mm-hmm. a year. We're on a par with France. And we'll start on Morning Ireland. And no, it wasn't your imagination. It was a very rainy March. Here's Mary Wilson. Ireland has just had its wettest March on record, according to provisional data from Metairn. In a moment, we'll be talking to climatologist Paul Moore, who'll be publishing a more detailed analysis from weather stations all around the country later on this morning. But first, we can hear from the farming community, a sector particularly affected by the wet weather. Kildare dairy farmer Brian Rush, he's deputy president of the Irish Farmers Association. He spoke to our reporter Maura Hannan about how the recent rain had impacted his livelihood. We were targeted to get uh, cows out to grass soon after they calve. And while we had a good and dry February, which allowed us to get stock out, March has been the complete opposite. Just very, very wet, leaving leaving cattle that were out unsettled. So we had to rehouse nearly everything that we had out, which created extra work, uh, added extra cost as well in terms of feed and silage. So um, that was the livestock end of things. The other thing that I delayed was, of course, that March, you know, you'd be getting into longer days and better weather. You'd be, you'd be aiming to get out into the field to get some field work. So we're quite behind on any of the field work we had planned to do. And that was dairy farmer Brian Rush speaking to Maura Hannan. For more, I'm joined by Paul Moore, climatologist with Metair. And Paul, good morning. Good morning, Mary. How are and we, you? we were just listening there to the difficulties for farmers from the wet March. This the wettest March we've had on record, following on from the driest February for many's the day. What's going on? Um, yeah, it was the fourth driest February and then uh, we've led into the wettest March. So February, we were kind of stuck in a pattern of high pressure over us. Um, and that kind of broke down at the beginning of March and we've been stuck in a pattern with low pressure just to our west and southwest um, since around the 10th of March. Um, so that's kind of brought up a lot of moisture from the south and southwest with a lot of rain and uh, fronts coming up. And um, in, a, in, a war- in a warming climate, the, there's more moisture in the, in the atmosphere. So it can lead, if we get stuck in a pattern like this, it can lead to heavier and more intense rainfall. Mm. And that's the key, isn't it? Are we stuck in a pattern? Um, well, we've kind of we're coming out of the, the pattern now, but mm. um, it tends to happen. What we've been seeing um, with kind of with climate change is that the, the pattern does get stuck for longer in certain circumstances. So we can get stuck under high pressure for longer periods, um, and that's projected obviously in in summers to have drier summers into the future, but wetter winters because we can get stuck in patterns where we've a lot of low pressure around us for longer periods of time and with more moisture available there that can lead to heavier and more prolonged rainfall events. Uh, and Paul, have we seen uniform levels of rainfall right across the country or are we seeing some counties worse affected than others? The majority uh, of counties are, are well above average. The only place that really escaped with, with close to average rainfall is up in Donegal, the far northwest. 
And they also had the, the sunniest, uh, with unusually had the sunniest uh, March. Um, normally it, would, it wouldn't. Yeah. And Cork, Cork yeah. Airport had a very dull March with only like half the sunshine values. You'd expect so, it to be the opposite, would you? Yes, but the, the where the low pressure was centred just to the west or southwest, it was sending up the rain bands from the south and southwest, so it affected the east and the and the south into the midlands more so, whereas the northwest was closer to the high pressure over Greenland um, escaped the heavier rain. All right, I know you're publishing further data today in the climate statement, and there is research, and I want to hear about this, uh, if you wouldn't mind, into the estimations of rainfall that we're going to experience over the next decade, over the next two decades. Are we going to see really serious changes to the seasons as we know them now? Um, the seasons will will stay the same, but the the estimated rainfall intensities, uh, which was published on our website there, um, to give the, the building construction industry kind of to help them mitigate against um, climate change into the future. It's part of the National Framework for Climate Services. That's that's showing that there's a, really an increase um, of about 15% of rainfall, like come mid-century time, uh, about 15% of rainfall in winter and fall and, and spring or winter and autumn times, mm-hmm. and a decrease of about 20% rainfall in spring summer times. Um, so overall, it'll just be slightly, it's projected to be slightly less, but more in winter more, and more heavy, more intense rainfall events. But of course, um, impactful on the country, impactful on farmers and those who make their, their livings fr- from the land and indeed where we live and so on as well. Yeah, like it, it's, we would have been more used to kind of a more gradual kind of yeah. uh, rainfall events, whereas if they're getting heavier and um, more intense kind of sharper rainfall events, you know, like we've had in the in the last month, so a lot of rain in a short period of time. That's kind of adds to the flooding and the waterlogged ground. Paul Moore on Morning Ireland with Mary Wilson. Then later, Claire Burns spoke to climatologist John Sweeney. So, John, were you surprised to see so much rain in March coming after that dry February? Well, it was exceptional, certainly, and, and it did catch a lot of people by surprise. And I think the fact that we had such a dry February with even droughts in the middle of it officially declared, uh, it did kind of uh, come as a bit of a shock that we were entering into what was really a damp, uh, almost sunless month. Um, and, and yes, it was uh, exceptional, but in a way it wasn't too surprising because you know the, the transitional seasons between winter and summer and between summer and winter, they've become a bit more, um, if you like, volatile over the past few years because we know our winters are getting wetter and our summers are getting drier. So the intermediate months between them, sometimes we get a touch of each of, of those seasons. And really what we had this year um, was the aftermath in March of what was, I think, widely touted as a stratospheric warming event. Uh, People were worried, if you remember, six weeks ago that we were going to get the beast from the east returning. It came a little late in the the season for us to get the really bad weather that we had in 2018, but it was sufficient to disrupt the jet stream a little. And so, whereas in February our jet stream was away to the north of us, bringing lots of mild and dry weather, uh, bringing that really dry month in February, when we got to March, 
it had been displaced a little south over us. And so we had a steady string of depressions coming from the Atlantic, one after another, giving us that almost continuous belt of rain uh, day after day that yeah. characterised the month. Yes, and as I said earlier, we all felt the long, wet march that we had. But in terms of what we're likely to see now, John, and what we have seen in the recent past, extremes like that, like all of that rain in March, is that becoming the norm? Extremes are increasingly becoming the norm and they're becoming the norm because we're putting more energy into the atmosphere. Um, The offshore sea, for example, around Ireland today is about a degree warmer than it has been in the past. So for every one degree, the atmosphere can hold 7% more water vapour. So the risk, therefore, of downpours, the risk of of heavy rainfall has increased substantially. Just as we saw last summer, the risk of really warm temperatures is something we're going to have to come to terms with as well. And I'm afraid that's the price we're going to be paying for climate change from now on. We're going to see a little more volatility in our climate and perhaps even especially during those transitional months of spring and autumn Mm -hmm. and uh, we have to be prepared for that really and adapt to it. And are you surprised to see what's happening in some parts of the United States with the increase in tornadoes and storms over the last couple of days? Well, the United States and North America is a really continental regime and this time of the year you have the battleground zone between continental air from really cold sources in the north in Canada and the warm, the mild Gulf are trying to push north as the seasons change. And so again, we have those kind of preconditions for really extreme weather events to occur. And they have been a feature of the springtime uh, throughout North America for as long as we can remember. But of course, as we put more energy into the atmosphere again, those kinds of events are perhaps likely to be more extreme than they were Mm -hmm. historically in the past. And that's the unfortunate side because they can be fatal, as we discovered uh, last week. John Sweeney from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the morning, Oliver Callan was in for Ryan and his guest was Tom Bond, a bushcraft survival expert who is passionate about getting children out into the wild and learning the craft. Uh, Bush Kids is the TV series uh, on RT2. We'll come to that in a second. But bushcraft is your thing, isn't it? Yeah, that's um, one of my many things. One of your many things. But tell us what bushcraft is. It's, it's basically outdoor survival or even okay. reconnecting with nature. Okay. Like you don't have to go out and have all the gear, have all the, the knowledge and everything like that. It's just about being back out, loving being in the great outdoors. And even like learning how to survive is a very amazing because it really is an endless journey. There's so many things to learn. It's just as, you know, Leonardo da Vinci once said, Ancora Imparo, still learning. That's a, that's a lovely phrase, isn't it? It's fantastic. And uh, we're kind of scared of the outdoors a bit in Ireland, aren't we? Uh, Do you find the, the, like, you know... Some oh, comfortable like, people. During, during the lockdown, it became a really, really big thing. Yeah. Like, you know, like when people were only allowed to travel certain distances, of course, getting out for those walks and everywhere you go now, it's just getting busier and busier and busier. So people are really getting back out there. It's but improving. It, I, it's just reconnecting back up with the natural world. Yeah, and it's a lovely thing. Uh, I often think maybe Ireland isn't just exotic enough to go outside and we just don't have anything... Uh, 
imagine. Uh, but you've kind of changed my mind having watched a couple of episodes of Bush Kids, yeah. uh, even what? though I thought being there out is, in- there's, there's just unbelievably fantastic places and a lot of still hidden gems for everybody who wants to get out there. Everybody finds their own little corner. Even like when you go to places where there's so many people, you do find your little spot, your little area where you call home from home, yeah. if you know what I mean. And that's just is Were you always an outdoorsy person as a oh, child? Were you everybody, mad everybody I knew growing up was all outdoors. It's like you woke up in the morning, that's it, get out. But we were a very uh, hunting family. Like that's what we do the whole time. Well, we did the whole time back then. Were you and farmers? F- farmers. F- funny kind of ones, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, what period are we talking here? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, but like, but then like. You were a farmer though in down in Nina, were you? No, I'm not. No? Okay. No. So what no. were you hunting just, then? Just, Rabbits, basically. You know, the place was full of rabbits and there was only rabbits. But fishing was a huge thing as well. Right. And everywhere you went, you were cycling. Right. You know, okay, like, yeah. But the roads were a bit quieter. But we knew all the back roads and things like that. You'd spend the whole day just fishing, fishing, fishing or hunting. Depends on what you're doing. But you, so you grew up in a town, did you? Were you I a did, townie? yeah. Yeah. So there must have been some interest. How did you decide, right, I'm going to go down and cycle, spend my life outside? It, Joel, it just felt natural. I always oh, lo- right. I love... Um, Stone Age and history and archaeology and everything yeah. like that and even astronomy all those kind of things so like they're all natural things but when bushcraft and you combine all those things together there's a huge connection in all of those Do you think there's a kind of a, a, a sort of a wee longing in our ancestral brains particularly in Ireland because we do come from pagan people and we were outside in ring forts and all of those kind of things is there there's a longing there that you want to kind of open uh, up in people's minds don't you? Do you know what? It's actually really, there's a rebirth at the moment of the old ancient ways. And a lot of people are gone back to that reconnecting mm. in the, the stone circles or the ring forts, the solstices, things like that, just getting back out. Uh, and of course, the, some of the ring forts, it's the fear of the little people really that's protecting them at this stage, isn't it? <laughs> Do you know what? They're actually <laughs> okay. You know what I mean? They're actually good. They're the, they're the good people there. We the, don't the mind them. people. Yes. You're happy with them? I don't, as long as they're happy with me, I'm happy with them. Have they served us well, do you think? Do you know what? They, they bring a one, couple of wonderful things to the country. <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, they not? came into the country. Huh? They're, not, they're not from here. No, so. no, more blow-ins <laughs> like me, you know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and Oliver asked Tom about the influence of Bear Grylls and Ray Mears on the interest in bushcraft and survival skills. For years it was like that, like the books you could get and the, the information you could find seemed very military, like you're out to yeah. survive and that was it. Mm. But then a, along came people like Bear Grylls, Ray Mears and a few other people and it just opened up a whole new way of looking at these things that it's a lot easier and a lot simpler just to get the stuff and head out. So you think those people sort of softened it a little bit? Softened it. Well, you, I thought they you know, they made it more sort of like macho they did, like kind they, of thing. I didn't think they? they made it like um, a home thing for everybody. Okay, so you everyone know, felt like, like comfort. Like you're yeah. not, you can go out and you can just stroll. You're not out running and diving off things and climbing up stuff. You're you're out. You walk. You bring your backpack. You bring a few little things. You find that area. You sit down. Make your cup of tea. Do a bit of cooking if you want. And it depends what you're into. So how do you start out? Do you need loads of gear? A good pair of boots is number one, I always say. That's it, yeah. You know, like, because just buy a really good pair of boots. You own them. You'll always own them. Don't worry about spending that extra few few pounds to say (laughs) on your your pair of boots. Like, your feet. Mind your feet. They're going to carry you everywhere you want to go. But, like, just start off really basic. Get a flask, bit of hot water, make yourself a sandwich, take it out, 
take it one step at a time because a lot of people who believe they will love it buy a load of gear, a load of gear, and then all of a sudden they may fall out of mm. the the interest and they have a lot of stuff sitting there to sell it off. That's right. And uh, it's easier now, isn't it? A couple of years ago, you know, uh, given our kind of territorial hold on land, mm. it was hard to kind of go get a good old hiking route in the wild, wasn't it? But now yeah, greenways yeah. and everything. Oh, there's, there's plenty. It's fantastic. And even, even with the, the forestries now that are there, it's, it's well good to go out. Do you know what I mean? Like just more than, more than plenty of areas. It's just yeah. the safety thing. And of course, leaving no trace is a huge thing. Clean up after yourself. Don't be throwing the rubbish. Don't even burn rubbish. You know, that's... And things, just take everything away with you. Do only, you only burn the natural stuff if you need it and you know what you're doing. Oh, just all natural. And when you walk away, like, you don't see anything there. You clean up everything. Okay. You Basically, I what I say to myself is, I was not here. Okay, leave no, no trace. No, leave no trace. Diddly. The texts are coming in. Um, 515 is the text. Can you ask Tom, where's the best place to learn about what you should do or should not do and eat in the wild and so on? There are courses available for this, aren't there? And this is what you do for a living. Yeah. Do you know what? There's, lucky enough, there's something everywhere all over the country now because it is tough for people to travel down maybe for one day or things like that but there are many companies all over the country and if you just go on the old Google you'll, uh, you'll find somewhere that, that's suitable in your area and it's it's definitely definitely something worth doing especially for safety and just get a head start because like you could say I'm going to go out and start practising but like just driving, if you if you start off with many bad habits, you're going to develop bad habits. Okay. And you don't realise you're doing these bad habits. So it's mm. really, really worth doing a, a course. What's your number one safety uh, tip? Ah, uh, just so many. <laughs> really, yeah. Uh, but you know, not everybody carries a knife. Not everybody carries a saw. And I think, I just think, be very, very careful with fire. Like okay. the campfire is wonderful. I call it nature's TV. It's, oh, the, yeah. it's the only channel you'll never change. Yeah. You know, but like, just, you don't really need the circle of stones because a lot of people, when you leave it there, it attracts more people and that's where the rubbish starts to build up. Right. People just think, well, there's the fire. Yeah, let, let's use here. And then all of a sudden there's busted right. bottles and things like that. But the campfire, I think you need to be careful. You need to know where you're going to light it, how you're big you're going to light it, the types of sticks. Don't be burning, don't be chopping down trees. You know, I'm... I hate seeing trees getting chopped down, really. You mm. know, and, and, of course, the weather and so on, and whether it's safe to have sparks flying off. Uh, yeah, yeah. Depends. Of... Depends. And that's why you've got to know the area you're in. You want good, solid ground. You want to stay away from grassy areas or peaty areas, where there's yeah. things that can basically hold a spark. Or, and then, over time, they develop into a big fire. Bush Kids is, is obviously aimed at children and bringing them out into the wild, but parents probably don't love the idea of uh, them handling knives. Knives are actually um, the, probably the number one essential mm. bushcraft survival item is the knife. Like mm. you ask anybody to pick one essential item, the knife is number one. It's so hard to rebuild in the wild. You can make nearly everything else, but the knife is just so useful. But uh, a, a sharp knife is safer than a blunt knife. Because when you're using a blunt knife, you're putting in all that extra pressure, all that extra work just to try and cut even the basic of things. And that's where you're more prone to accident. But a good yeah. sharp knife... You work smoothly, you work safely, always cut away from yourself, never cut towards yourself and make sure there's nobody in your, your area. And Oliver asked Tom about his TV programme, Bush Kids. I got a call from the good people up in Mayo at uh, G Marsh TV yeah. and they, want, they had an idea for this show that they were going to call Bush Kids. So I went up one day, they were on about 
they just wanted to know like what could you do like not me what could I do but like just to give him a few ideas and he's but sure we got talking and we went out into the woods and one thing led to another uh, by the end of the day they said they asked me would I be interested in presenting the show but I uh, I argued against it, do you know what I mean? Because uh, the, the wages were too good, you know what I mean? <laughs> so you kind of, you get families, don't you, with children, you bring them off into the wild and teach them how to... Yeah. We, and we, they're novices, aren't they? they? They've never been out. They've never been out. No. Or, or maybe some of them have been in the scouts and things like that. But this is a whole new level and it is complete survival. Yeah. Like when they're out, they're out. They they're, sleep out wild. You're not cook. bringing a tent, you're we, building we, it. We build everything, we cook everything... And we carry what we can, we forage what we can, and we use everything that's natural around us. And we just keep it to the, to, was, to the, to the nature. It's just quick because it, it, it's such fun. Like, it's a very funny show as well. And you see the children, they start the kids out. kids are great. Yeah, you know, they start out kind of, brilliant. Well, oh, is it going to be wet outside? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And by the time they're leaving, they don't want to leave. And, like, the, the idea behind it is um, a new family per episode and a new habitat. So you might have... The beach, you might have the woodland, you might have the bog, you might have a few uh, a few other kind of areas and mix it all up. But each one of us like have our own little jobs along the way. And I like to stand back after a while, like show them a few things, but then let them off, let them off on their own. And I love the fact that you you kind of pick on, no, sorry, you, you, chose, you choose the children that maybe aren't so into it. Or they might be more dominant I, I sibling. Don't, I don't know who and they are. And you find out what their skill is and then you find them yeah, something to I, do. I it's, only meet the really family cool. on the day. Yeah. So we have to get to know each other and you see some of them are really good at maybe building shelters. Some of others then are fantastic at uh, cooking and other ones, other people then just love to do other different kinds of things. So we can work really good as a team. And they're really fascinated by the stuff you uh, you pick out of the fields and go, yeah, yeah, we can yeah, eat this. Yeah. They love that. Okay. And we go, and I actually brought a few little things yeah, for I you. I see that, okay. You know, but uh, hey, I've got to give you one. But draw what? I have a few things here. A lovely lunchbox of herbs. I have nettle. Herbie. Nettle? Mm. Okay, what do you do with nettle? Well, it is a sting in nettle. But, okay. you know, if you put it into a bile of water, it kills all the, the stingers off it. So you can make a nice they're like little hairs. nettle tea. So you just, you just stick the leaf in, into a cup of boiling water on top. Hot yeah, water from it'll the kill all the... The, um, what does the it taste like? I have a bit of goosegrass there. Do you know the one that's really sticky? Goosegrass is sticky. Is it kind of a cleaver? Or yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I hate those well. ones. And you're like, you could throw it at somebody, cover it in somebody. But you know what? If you had lots and lots of this, you could make yourself a, a good camouflage suit. Wrap it all around you so much. Oh my God, yeah. yeah. That'd be, here, um, here's be a fun. really interesting one that I'm going to give you. Okay, it's a little leaf. It looks like um, a little leaf. It's the shape of an it, ivy leaf, it but is. it's give softer. It a, give it a little squash between your fingies. Okay, squash it now between the fingers. And smell it. It smells like... Oh. It smells like um, garlic. It is. It's 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 a wild garlic. Very nice. And at this time of the year now, we have the wild oh, garlic. We have ramsons, and that's called Jack by the Hedge. And the reason they call garlic is associated with the word Jack is because the devil... Do you like the smell? They say like garlic is associated with the smell of the devil. Garlic right. is the devil. So the little people didn't like garlic. Well, they say like the, the scent of it, it keeps you not. But here's a really... Oh, sorry. Yes, one. of course, the vampires and vampires. This, this bad boy here. Now... Describe that for I us. could ask you to eat that. But when you see when you see that... Looks like a basil leaf. It looks delicious, doesn't it? It looks and, really, really and nice. And you actually get those in amongst ramsons, which is wild garlic. But that's actually lords and ladies and that's poisonous. Oh, Lords and late, that's and, and this is the thing about it. Like when people are out foraging, it might look good, it looks but it's, really it does nice. not. 
It does not. Um, that's why you need the bushcraft well. skills. That's you know if as they say, if in doubt, leave it out. Just pick what you know. <laughs> just stick to the basic. Like um, even when you're picking nettles, there is a certain technique, and we actually showed yeah. on on the, actually on the episode this week. That's you right. You can see how to. Pick a nettle. The very top, the new bit of growth. I also saw you put some elderflowers. You just dipped it into a cup, put some boiling let water it, yeah, on top yeah. and elderflower tea. Delicious. Just let it soak and enjoy the, the sweet taste. And you didn't rinse it under a tap. There was no tap out in the wild. You just dunk it in and away What's you go. What's a tap? <laughs> What's a fairy potato? Oh, everybody loves to dig a fairy potato. <laughs> you know, they're called pig nut. And they're, they're actually starting to come up now as well at the moment. So they'll be ready to dig soon. But they're like tiny little miniature potatoes when you dig down yeah. but they're difficult to dig they're not like you're straightforward dig down there you go they look like a tiny little miniature potato so they call them fairy potatoes and you can eat them just peel them eat them raw they look they look very nice do they taste like a kind of a starchy they're, they're a pretty bland taste but you know what gather yeah. enough of them chop them all up throw everything in together into the good woodland stew you're making soup and and stew outside with nettles sitting Uh, in them as well anything we find goes in the pot Tom Bond talking to Oliver Callan in the morning And on today with Claire Byrne, the arraignment of former President Donald Trump in New York. The former US President Donald Trump will be arraigned at Manhattan Criminal Courthouse this afternoon after his indictment in that grand jury probe over hush money paid to Stormy Daniels. There's a huge security operation underway all around Trump Tower and the courthouse, police bracing themselves for potential protests. Donald Trump is the first former US President to face criminal charges and he's due to be arraigned and fingerprinted at the downtown Manhattan courthouse this afternoon. His campaign said he will deliver remarks at his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida once he gets back from Manhattan later today. Well, for the latest on this, I'm joined by Terry Sheridan, News Director at WSHU Public Radio. Terry, thank you very much for joining us. So take us through what we're expecting to happen this afternoon at the Manhattan courthouse. Well, first of all, we're, we're expecting this to happen about 2.15 our time, uh, 7.15 your time. And what will happen is basically a processing of, of Donald Trump. He will show up. Uh, we don't know whether he'll walk in the front door or the back door. do know that he will not be handcuffed. He will be fingerprinted. He will also probably, and this we don't know 100%, will have a mugshot taken. We do know that the uh, state of New York will not release that mugshot. If Donald Trump releases it, that's his business. But by law, the state of New York does not release it. He'll then face a judge. Uh, he'll answer. The charges will be unsealed. He'll probably plead not guilty. And then he will leave the building. Again, we don't know whether he'll walk out the front door or walk out the back door. Mm-hmm. And we are expecting, or rather the police and the and New York is expecting the authorities there, some level of protest, supporters coming out to show that they're on side with Donald Trump. Right. We do know of two protests. One will be at Trump Tower sometime this morning, probably around 11 o'clock. That is being called a rally. Then we know that at 2.15-ish, sometime around the arraignment in a park across the street from the courthouse, there will be a protest led by Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. Now, all 35,000 members of the New York City Police Department have been called to duty today. Uh, They are in uniform. Uh, The mayor and the police commissioner say they are ready for any disturbance. And they, they say they welcome people coming in to protest and 
have their uh, First Amendment rights given to them, we will not tolerate any violence. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't know exactly what he's going to be charged with, do we? We'll find that out later today, too. Right. When they unseal the indictment, now again, there's a lot of rumours going around. We believe that there were 34 counts. We were hearing last night that there were 34 felonies, which is very serious. This is all in relationship to the payment to Stormy Daniels. Daniels. What we believe is that one will be charged with the crime of falsifying a business record from the Trump organization in which they paid Michael Cohen the money to pay Stormy Daniels. The unique aspect of this case is then they're going to prove that that payment violated election law as an illegal in-kind campaign contribution. That is what makes it a felony, Uh, but that is a unique theory, and it's not a slam-dunk case, although you would have to imagine if you were going to charge the former president of the United States, must be pretty certain you have the goods. All right, your line is uh, breaking on us a little bit, but we'll try and continue for another minute or so, Terry, because when he arrived in New York, we, we were hearing that he was deep in consultation with his legal team, and he's added a man called Todd Blanche to that legal team. What do we know about him? Todd Blanche is a former federal prosecutor. He is known as someone who is thorough. He is known as someone who is fair. He he has represented members of Trump's inner circle before, campaign managers, uh, Paul Manafort, etc. He's considered, I would say he's considered a heavyweight. The other attorneys that were representing him before don't have that reputation or that gravitas Todd Blanche does. Mm-hmm. And there's some history between Donald Trump and the judge who will be uh, hearing this initial case today. Yeah, the, the, the judge, uh, Judge Juan Merchon, had been the judge that oversaw the case against Trump's former uh, CFO of the Trump Organization earlier or late last year, uh, Alan Weisselberg. Uh, Trump has, pub- has put on Truth Social that this judge is an anti-Trump judge and he's demanding that he be removed from the case. That is probably unlikely. Terry Sheridan there with Claire Byrne in the morning. Then later on the live line in the afternoon, Mike Kelleher called Philip Boucher Hayes. I'm an American citizen by naturalization. I served in the U.S. military. I served a large part of my life as a police officer there. So I know a little bit about the working of America. But the thing about it is with Donald Trump at the moment, this is what you would call dirty politics at the, to like being in a slurry tank. And that's what it is. The Democrats, let me sum it up this way. I just got back from the States. And many times one of your our cameraman that we have out there when he's reporting, he reports all the lovely little details about America. Now, I'm with somebody that loves the country, but... If you were to go along today and go through the major cities in America, Philadelphia, Detroit, forget Detroit, that's a disaster. Go to a city where I live, got married, met my wife there, San Francisco. I cry to see what it's like today. And Chicago is a place where I lived until I was drafted in the military. I was there. Chicago is a mayoral election at the moment out there. And if they want to talk about dirty politics, this is the worst. But Mike, Even outright Mike, racist. Mike, if, if you were a man who swore to uphold and protect the United States, surely you're also a man who believes that no individual should be above the law. And go expand on that. Who do you think is above the law? 
Give me your opinion on that. Well, what I'm suggesting to you is that if there is a properly constituted legal authorities think that Donald J. Trump has a case to answer, well, then that he should be made to answer that case, no? The only case is to answer is giving a bit of money to, to Stormy Daniels. Listen, there's been hush money being given there since Jesus was a boy. That's nothing new in American, in American politics. And if they want to take that one to court with them, I'll testify. Any law student after one year inside their studying would, defend, would be able to beat that rap. It's straight up dirty politics. We have a different. But Mike, go, Mike, you're, yeah. you're absolutely right that you know the paying of the money to Stormy Daniels isn't the issue. The issue is how that was classified and did it become effectively an election expense and one that wasn't declared. That's a matter for the Intel Revenue, the, poly, the, 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 the financial people to do that. That's not being challenged at the moment. The main one thing is Stormy Daniels inside and did he lie or did he not lie inside there. Look, we, we could spend all day talking about, uh, about going up in, in, in going up. I've seen people when I was a police officer inside there and they're going up there and they after killing somebody inside there and you get them with the gun smoking. They stand up there. Oh, Your Honour, I had nothing to do with it. I got that gun. That, that wasn't mine at all. That's nonsense. What do you expect is going to happen here, Mike? Do you think that he'll beat this rap? He'll beat this rap. No, it will be dragged out. They'll put, look, it's like this. As Dan Loughanel said, he could drive a coach and forth to any court to produce justice. They can do that over there. But it's just the Democrats are in a bad position at the moment because Joe Biden, who I voted for in the last election, he, the, 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 do, you know what, the, do you know what San Francisco is like at the moment with the amount of people flooding in over the Mexican border? Okay, come, it, come, come, come back one sentence there because I'm a little bit confused. I thought I had you triangulated properly here. You're a Trump fan, you're a Trump supporter, you want to see him beat this, you think it's an example of dirty politics, but you voted for Biden. I voted for Donald Trump the first time because he was he was against uh, against uh, um, what's her name uh, Hillary Clinton. Clinton. Hillary Clinton was a disaster. She was the second worst Secretary of State in the okay, history. Okay, but what made you change States. your mind about Trump in the four years that he was in power I that you voted for Biden? When 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 Donald Trump came up on the, on the uh, when he was on the debate with Joe Biden. I thought he was dirty when he started talking about Joe Biden's son having drug problems and these things and talking. You don't do those things. There is nobody going, there's nobody listening to this okay. program today who somebody in their, prob, in their family has some bit of a problem or not. And you don't stand up in your butter box and preach that to the public. When, when he said that, I lost faith in Donald Trump. Now, Joe Biden... So would you vote for him in November 2024? I will vote on the election. I've always voted. When, when but would you the, vote for the, Donald Trump again? No, I, that is on the day in question. I would have to think about it. If Joe Biden is running for president, then I'd have thoughts about it. Mike there, then Fiona called Philip from Galway. I just arrived here this morning. Um, gosh, it's, uh, it was a relief, honestly, to get out of America for a little while. Politics has become, as one of your guess that it's, it's become a dirty business. It's really, the way I look at it, it's, it's a whole series of sideshows and distractions to um, keep Americans focused on what, uh, keep their focus away from the real issues. 
And the real issues are everything from systemic racism to the fact that there's more guns in America than there is in any other country in the world. Just in Nashville this week, three small children were killed in their classrooms. Three teachers also died at the same time. And that's, that's the reality of America. But meanwhile, we're looking at this three-ring circus, um, a man who's going to be indicted, not because he paid off a porn star. I mean, one of your guests said that that was, the, that was what he was being charged with. That is not a crime. That is not a crime. What is a crime is when you cover up that payment and you filter that money through your, uh, um, your campaign finances. That's against the law. So, Fiona, are you and saying so, to me that you, that you would just prefer not to see this spectacle unfold over the course of the next however many months? Or are you saying that they shouldn't be prosecuting him, that this shouldn't be the distraction that it is going to be for the next year? What I don't understand, and again, this is really more about how life in America has degenerated into these sideshows. The media, both wall-to-wall, hour-by-hour, 24-hour coverage of this man who is being indicted on charges we, don't, we, we still don't know what the charges are, but no one is above the law. I don't, the, 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 the three-ring circus around this whole thing is what I object to. He will, be, he will stand before a judge. He will be fingerprinted. He will be mugshotted or not. And then he will go back to Mar-a-Lago and he'll hold a press conference. And every journalist, every network TV, cable TV in America will be there. To listen, will be okay. and is, is that your problem that it is just it's all consuming and it's sucking all the oxygen out of the room yes yes meanwhile there are children being killed in classrooms meanwhile they're attacking drag queens it is now becoming it's illegal in Tennessee to perform at a drag show I mean think about it if the, pan, the pantomimes at the gaiety would be illegal um, they're taking they're taking books out of libraries. Uh, gun violence is through the roof. You've got systemic racism. I mean, on and on and on. Very really serious issues. Very serious issues that there are a lot of people working very hard to push back against and to improve the lives of Americans. But that's not what the media are focusing on. Meanwhile, they're focusing on this individual uh, who has just held America captive by by being an entertainer. Fiona on the live line with Philip Edger Hayes. And on Morning Ireland, 30,000 people may be affected by the lifting of the eviction ban. John Mark McCafferty of Threshold spoke to Orty Carvel. More than 4,300 eviction notices were sent out in the last three months of 2022. The six-month eviction ban, which the government lifted last month, came into effect last October. The numbers were released by the Residential Tenancies Board. From last July to September, 4,741 eviction notices were issued to renters. For the whole of 2022, just under 12,000 notices were sent out. With us in studio this morning is the CEO of Threshold, which advocates on behalf of renters. John Mark McCafferty. You're very welcome. Good morning. morning. So around 9,000 eviction notices in the last six months of 2022. Are they all in effect now that the ban is lifted? 
Um, the um, some of them may have already kind of ran their course. Um, I, I guess with um, notices of termination, um, they're they're at different stages, and it really depends when uh, the notice was um, communicated between the the landlord and the tenant. Um, that the length of notice period that the tenant's eligible for, and that relates obviously to the length of the, the lease, how long the, the tenant has been in uh, the lease in the property for. So it depends, it's quite a dynamic um, picture. Um, and we have our own figures and thresholds, obviously, because we have we have a caseload of, of, of people, of families who are coming to us um, and they, they have been issued with um, a notice of termination, um, some of which have expired, the vast majority of which are, are going to expire in uh, either you know this quarter or in, in, in subsequent months across mm-hmm. this year. So the 9,000 eviction notices, 12, nearly 12,000 for the whole of the year. But how many people does that represent, 9,000 notices? Well, I guess if you're looking at 9,000 notices, then you're looking at somewhere between about uh, 2,200, uh, you know, or, or rather 20,000, uh, 22,000, right up to about uh, 30,000 people because you're you're looking at a lot of families there's there's there'll be a lot of in, uh, individual households there single people households but you'll have families with children um you may have multiple generations living within the one house um and ultimately you know we we, uh, we often talk in figures because of the the volumes of, of people that we're dealing with but at the end of the day uh, we are talking about families individuals people trying to get on with their lives put kids to school care for older parents um, deal with the the various travails that we all have but then you you add on top of that the uncertainty of living in the private rented sector the worry about and prospect about losing your your home and then the reality when you're issued with the notice of termination um, and what that means in in terms of trying to find alternative accommodation where there's low or no alternatives um, and then when you turn to um, emergency accommodation, questions around whether or not there's the capacity, the, the resources at local authority level to, to be able to house everyone who may need emergency accommodation. So it, it is a, a very, very challenging um, time. Uh, it's very challenging even, you know, at the level of threshold services because um, we are in the business of advising people and saving tenancies and, and, and fighting to protect tenancies. And in this unprecedented time, we are spending more of our time, our advisors are spending more of their energy on um, validating tenancy, uh, tenancy terminations and confirming that, yes, that, that tenancy termination is valid. But the one thing I would say is that, you know, in terms of our own figures and, and our own, our own caseloads, we have over 4,000 um, cases, if you like, uh, households mm-hmm. where um, a, a notice of termination has been issued. Um about 55% of them are invalid notices of termination. So that first communication between landlord and tenant is actually technically invalid. So it's really, really important that renters know that they have rights, that they have protections, and not to accept a notice of termination on face value mm-hmm. because, um, you know, for as, as our experience bears out, the majority of those notices aren't valid and can be questioned um, maybe due to a technicality or the, you know, based on a, a false premise in the notice of termination. So it's really important that people come to the likes of Threshold to check to get and advice. stress test those. And that number, huge number that you mentioned there, between twenty and 30,000 people, do you have any sense of how many of them have nowhere to go and will end up homeless, officially homeless? 
I mean, it's very difficult for us to say. I mean, local authorities might be better placed, but I mean, you know, who they are, it's people of, of all income brackets and, and, and all kind of household types and, and sizes and, and origins. Um, their options, um, you know, obviously some may find places um, elsewhere in the private rented sector, but that is a, a dwindling supply. Um, some may benefit from the tenant and situ arrangements, but it, again, it will be there'll be small numbers. Or you know, if they have the savings, they may avail of that first refusal. Um, but it presupposes that people have have been able to save up a ten or twenty percent deposit, when in fact the vast majority of any kind of disposable income has been or has been kind of spent in uh, housing costs. Um, some may access social housing. There has been an increase in social housing through approved housing bodies and to a lesser extent local authorities. The cost rental schemes are are, are ramping up but from a very very low baseline but many will move into I guess what we might call hidden homelessness you know so they they will have to come to some arrangement with family and friends couch surfing staying temporarily in in, in someone's spare room Um, and that's a very very difficult situation for any family or any individual to face when they're trying to get on with their own lives get kids to school you know caring responsibilities um, working commuting all of those things and so it's it, it is a very difficult uh, period. I think it's really important that, you know, we in Threshold say to the general public that we're there, um, that we continue to advise people on the rights um, about tenancy termination, about a whole raft of things, and that we will continue to, to try to protect tenancies um, despite this very, very challenging uh, period. John Mark McCafferty from Morning Ireland with Audrey Carville. And on today with Claire Byrne, Easter is coming and those chocolate eggs aren't going to eat themselves, are they? So business journalist Adam Maguire was delving into the numbers of eggs consumed in the country and doing the odd taste test too. Yeah, so I've been doing taste tests for this Good, this segment, yeah. good. That's what you want I to hear. I can tell you the chocolate is delicious. I yeah, can confirm right, that. Right, that's, yeah. the, that's the bottom line finding. <laughs> well, let's see what we can extrapolate from that revelation because <laughs> you looked at the average consumption per person of chocolate in a year and there are global figures on this. Yeah, yeah. And, and we, we do quite well ourselves. We're decent chocolate eaters, but we're not actually near the top of the table, it should be said. So apparently the average person in the world eats around 900 grams of chocolate a year, which to me doesn't seem like a lot. Nearly uh, a kilo. Nearly a kilo. Yeah, but it is a global figure. So it would include a lot of people who eat little or no chocolate, maybe because of their culture or it's just not in the diet or because it's too much of a luxury. And, you know, we probably don't think of chocolate as a luxury here, but but it really is for a lot of people. Uh, it, it is uh, something that's that's a bit out of reach. So in China, for example, the average person there eats about 200 grams of chocolate a year. So the, little the, or nothing. Little, yeah. So, you know, there's probably going to be more chocolate in an average sized Easter egg that the, that the Easter Bunny brings you on Sunday. It'll probably have about 250, maybe even 300 grams of chocolate in it. Uh, in India, it's about a kilo a year uh, on average. So, so a, a decent bit more. Uh, compared to Ireland, though, according to Chagask, in 2020, the average person here ate 3.6 kilos worth of chocolate over the course of the year. Oh. Uh, so, so way, way above many other countries, way above above uh, the, the global average and it would actually be above what we'd see in the UK they're about 3 kilos mm-hmm. a year we're on a par with France they're about 3.6 as well okay. it just sounds like a lot it I know sounds it's like a, it's sp- spread a over a year yeah. yeah we're below the European average though 5 kilos is the European average I'm surprised in, at that yeah in Germany it's 5.7 uh, kilos so they're bigger much bigger chocolate eaters than we are uh, but of course nothing compared to the US 9 kilos uh, per person of chocolate eaten in, in the what? US a year more than double what we consume y- yeah and, and people and 
And sorry to interrupt you, they eat bad chocolate. They, as they, well. Yeah, they eat Hershey's. The, 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 yeah, with the, with the fake milk in it that tastes <laughs> has a bit of sicky like taste American in the back of your throat. Chocolate. People will think the US, obviously the biggest consumers of chocolate, yeah. they're not by by a, a big stretch. Uh, Switzerland is top of the table per capita, eleven point six kilos of chocolate uh, per year mm-hmm. eaten uh, by Swiss people. They spend around two hundred and seventy dollars a year on chocolate, so they're massive, massive chocolate but eaters. They're eating the really good stuff, aren't they? Top yeah. notch. Yeah, but they're eating a lot of it. They are. Good, good or bad, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> and it's uh, you mentioned there that it's a luxury for so many people around the world, and it's also big business, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, estimated to be worth north of one trillion dollars a year. The global industry uh, here in Ireland, Chagas says. Uh, chocolate sales hit about 200 million euro in 2020. It's hard to get precise figures on on a more recent sales, but it's probably a good bit higher than that. We know that people turned to chocolate a bit more during COVID lockdowns as a kind of little treat for themselves. And even if we were buying the same amount because of inflation, the price of everything has gone up. So even if you're buying the same amount of chocolate as you were three years ago, it's costing you a lot more. So the amount we're spending is, is definitely higher than it was in 2020. Okay, so, so with Easter coming up now, how big is Easter within the figures for chocolate sales? It's really, really huge. I, w- I was told there are four key points in the, the chocolate maker's calendar. So you have Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, Easter and then uh, Christmas. Apparently Halloween is starting to, to poke in in terms of being an important period, but but still well below there the four uh, key periods and within that Easter is, is one of if not the biggest of, of the four Board Bia told me Easter represents around 40% of the annual sales of Irish producers so so pretty much one day accounting for 40% uh, you know coming close to half of your sales for the year yeah. uh, Christmas probably still a little bit bigger overall but Easter obviously uh, critical all the same and, and the common denominator what's interesting for those four key dates like Valentine's Mother's Day Easter uh, and Christmas they're all focused on gifting uh, and that's really important for chocolate companies and particularly for Irish producers because, you know, chocolate is kind of a safe bet of a gift. Most people would like something chocolatey, particularly at Easter. Uh, uh, people are willing to spend some a little bit more to get something nice and they'll probably spend more on a chocolate gift than if they were buying it for themselves, They'll you know, for the nice box and all that yes. kind of stuff. They'll spend a bit more for somebody else than they would themselves. So that's how you make a bit more money out of it. I know it. we've been talking a lot about um, shrinkflation in the supermarkets. Have you noticed that the Easter eggs are a bit smaller this year? Yeah, they are, yeah. yeah. They I don't are. mind that though. Yeah, well, Maybe they're doing us a favour, but yeah. no, they definitely are. And and I mean that's that's been a trend for years with, with chocolate, chocolate bars in particular. They get smaller and smaller. I was watching yeah. an episode of Vicar Dibley recently, and the, the the crunchies on it were about must have been about a foot long, you know. So compare it now, it's about half that size. Yeah, you know, so, and so. and and as we said, it's no harm, particularly because a lot of Easter eggs tend to come into the house for children because everyone gets them a, a little Easter egg. Yeah, and they might only get them a little one, but multiply that by ten. Exactly, and a lot of chocolate. Yeah, but I was glad to see the little ones are very little this year, <laughs> so it, it helps. It helps. Adam Maguire from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the news at one, an unusual visitor to our coastline, the small tooth sand tiger shark, 14 foot long and washed up in Wexford. Scientists have been examining a rare 4 metre or 14 foot small tooth sand tiger shark, which was washed up on the coast of County Wexford. The discovery was made by a Swiss tourist out walking at Kilmore Quay at the weekend. Among those examining the discovery is Dr Jenny Bortoluski, PhD researcher at Trinity College Dublin. She spoke to us earlier... I start off by asking her how unusual it is for this species of shark to be found dead or alive in Irish waters. It's as unusual as it gets since it's uh, the first record that we have of it. We've never seen it here before. It's not to say that it hasn't been here because it's possible individuals might have washed up before or been in our waters and we just haven't been there to see it. But it's the first time that it's been recorded. 
And as to why, I mean, is this a, another, another sign of global warming? It's possible. It's very difficult to, to tell. Um, as I said, it's possible that there in the deep waters, there are species that would normally be in deeper waters. They're found normally in, in warm, temperate or tropical waters and deep waters. So they would only come up to the surface if it was warm and our waters aren't normally warm. So it's possible that it's a sign of change in ocean, but it could also be something entirely different related to a, an illness that this shark caught, getting lost on their migration. But there's so little we know about them that it's it's very difficult to, to tell what might have triggered this. So so having found uh, the shark and having begun to examine it, what, what are you hoping to find out from that examination? Well, because we still don't know very much about them, any time we find an individual like this, it can be a wealth of information that we might not have had access to before, so we can find out more about their biology and ecology. So that's to say what they might be eating, uh, what they normally feed on, how they reproduce, um, how big they get, and also we can run tests to try and find out exactly what killed it. Dr Jenny Bortolizzi from The News at One with Brian Dobson. And on today with Claire Byrne, downsizing, would you do it? Brian O'Connell was looking at a new scheme geared towards people over 60 in Cork. A scheme put in place by one local authority is allowing them to purchase the homes of people who are aged over 60 and who are looking to downsize and in return offer them long-term social housing. Last week, one new block of 35 apartments on the old Black Rock Road in Cork, which is part of the scheme, was open to prospective tenants and Brian O'Connell went along to the viewing and Brian is with us now. Good morning, Brian. Morning. So tell us all about this scheme and how it works. It's quite interesting, isn't it? The scheme is called Right Sizing. It's been pioneered by Cork City Council, but it's also elsewhere, including Limerick. It's targeted at people over the age of 60 who may be living in homes who have, which have become too big for their needs or maybe the homes need to be upgraded and they're possibly looking to move. So the way this works, as you said, is the local authority will buy your home off you. It's at a discount and in return, you live in one of their new schemes of housing as a social housing tenant. You have security of tenure for the remainder of your life. And then the amount you pay in rent is means tested, as is your eligibility for the scheme. So once your home is sold then by the lo- to the local authority, they can assign your home to a family on the housing list. I was actually talking to one person who told me their home had a very large garden and two more houses that are expected to be built on that site by the council now. So that will take three families possibly off the list. Okay, so if you have a house um, that the council want to buy, they're going to buy it from you, but at a discount, even though you're still expected to pay rent. Exactly, but the rent will be means tested, as is your eligibility for the scheme. So depending on what pension you're on and the discount varies depending on the house, depending on how much work needs to be done. Okay. Uh, some people were telling me in and around €50,000 of a discount for, for a house. Right. So uh, you visited this new development of apartments and they're available to people who decide to participate in the scheme. What e- was it like? Exactly. Well, many people would have passed this uh, this block. It was a vacant and partially built office block, actually, at the start of the old Black Road, which is a very desirable suburb in, in 
Cork City so partially finished office block and then you have this partnership Cork City Council the contractors MMD construction and then to a housing agency it's now 35 apartments it's called Springville House one and two bedroomed modern bright uh, really well finished apartments and they're ready to receive occupants so Thursday last there was an open morning people who were perhaps looking for social housing long term or who wanted to avail of this right sizing scheme they could go and see these homes many of the apartments have balconies I said they're bright they're A rated as, as you'd expect really good uh, finish and then some of it is left to tenants for example flooring and all the rest of the kitchens are installed so I spoke to Alison O'Rourke Senior Executive in Cork City Council and we took a tour of Springville House So we try to develop schemes that are providing age-friendly accommodation for people who wish to right-size. So what that means is people living in larger accommodation, three and four bedroom homes, um, who wish to choose to opt into one of our right-sizing schemes. This is a property here I've driven past. It was derelict for a long time. Come, it would have been derelict during the, you know, the height towards the start of the boom, and then through the, throughout the recession was empty, derelict. Um, it came into Cork City Council through our competitive dialogue procurement process. And Brian also spoke to some people considering right-sizing. There was a couple of things, Claire, that struck me about the people I chatted to at this viewing. People were saying, for example, their houses were too big for, for, for their needs. Their children had left, had moved on. A lot of people were saying as well, the costs in running their, their homes were causing them issues. And then the investment needed to make them energy efficient, they felt was prohibitive. So again, you can see the attraction in, in perhaps selling and moving to one of these A-rated energy efficient homes. I'm going to bring you two people in very different circumstances. This woman I met was looking at a two-bedroomed apartment and now that her, all her children have moved on, she felt time was right to sell and she was interested in selling the council her home and to avail of this long-term tenancy instead. I asked her how she came to that decision. Well, my age, I'm living in a big hill, top of a big hill. I'm not near a bus stop. My house was originally a three-bedroom house. I would like a two-bedroom place because my only child lives in Mayo. What's the attraction for you then? The attraction is no gardens, no cutting grass. <laughs> no cutting, no steps. You know, lots, lots of, lots of things, really. And how do you feel about moving from your family home? Oh, that don't worry me at all. Yeah. No, that would worry me at all. If it worked out for you, you'd sell your house at a discount to the council, and yeah. then you become a long-term tenant here. Any idea how much you'd be paying a month? It, that depends on your pension. There's a bit of a discount on the price that they, they get will for your take. House. They will take up to fifty thousand, depending on your age. Brian O'Connell reporting for today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.